All right, are there any uh, teenage drivers here this morning? Teenage drivers? Okay, I just want to be clear to those of you here that what I'm about to share with you is a negative example, okay? Bad example. You're not to follow it should you find yourself in a similar situation. Just want that disclaimer up front. Uh, Shortly, when I was a teenage driver, 16, just, you know, uh, high on that freedom you have when you realize you can just get in a car and, and go where you want to go. Uh, I was driving in my hometown of Mansfield, Ohio, uh, and I was stopped at a stoplight and a, a sharp-eyed police officer noticed that I was wearing my seatbelt incorrectly. Uh, I had the lap belt buckled, uh, but the shoulder belt in my old car went right across my neck. I always found that uncomfortable, and so I got in the bad habit of putting that behind me. Well, this was spotted. I was pulled over. I was ticketed, and due to the laws at the time, uh, that meant because I was 16 and I got, I got a, a ticket related to driving, I automatically had to go to traffic court. Uh, my dad drew the short straw, and he had to accompany me. Uh, to traffic court, and in the way, as, as we're on our way there, he was coaching me, and he said, Jay, just, just listen, please. When you get there, you're not to say anything, you're not to argue. The only words that should come out of your mouth are, yes, your honor, I know your honor, I'm very sorry, your honor, and I'll never do it again, your honor. That's it. He goes, I don't want to hear anything else. Anything else is only going to get you in deeper trouble. And being the teenage kid I was, I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of rolled my eyes and thought, yeah, of course. What else am I going to do, right? So we get to court. We're waiting patiently. Finally, uh, my case is called up, uh, and I stand up, and the magistrate says, ah, Mr. Pound, I see you are here today for failing to wear your seatbelt. I said, said, yes. I said, well, I'm sorry, Your Honor, I just... I just wanted to clarify, I'm actually, I'm not here for failing to wear my seatbelt. I'm here for wearing my seatbelt improperly. She looked at me for a second just to make sure I was serious and then said, yeah, okay, that's, that's the same thing as far as I'm concerned. I said, sorry, Your Honor, I just wanted to clarify, it's not actually the same thing. Uh, I, I, failing to wear it would mean not wearing it at all. I, I actually had the seatbelt buckled. I had the lap belt on. I just had the shoulder strap behind me, just trying to make sure we're all using the right facts here. She said, yes, Mr. Pound, the bottom line is it wouldn't have done you much good in a car accident. So, Your Honor, <laughs> I hate to disagree, but, but I think in a car accident, that still would have kept me from flying through the windshield. And you know... Until not that long ago, no car had any shoulder belt. They only had lap belts, so somebody must have thought they'd do some kind of good in an accident. <laughs> Mr. Pound, you will pay the full maximum fine, and, and you will attend a three-hour refresher course on the rules of the, rules of the road. Now, I, I have to confess to you that that experience left me somewhat um, upset with the justice system for several years. To some extent, I still feel that I had a point. You know, I'm just trying to get the facts right on the record. Uh, but what I have learned since is that whatever the virtues of my argument, my attitude going in was foolish. I was antagonistic when I should have been contrite. And I can't know for sure, but I suspect that I would have been much better served by the strategy my dad had suggested. If, for example, I had demonstrated some remorse and some repentance. 
instead of bickering over details. But what I realized in hindsight is that my confidence in my arguments, my confidence that I had the facts on my side made me arrogant. And so the verdict when it came, came as a very unwelcome surprise to me. This Sunday, we're continuing our our, uh, summer series on the parables of Jesus by looking at the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And in this parable, Jesus is addressing those who are approaching God's judgment much the same way that I was approaching traffic court. Luke, in fact, tells us this explicitly uh, right at the beginning of the parable. He gives us this great little editorial note in Luke 18, verse 9. Before we hear the parable, Luke tells us, he interrupts to say, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and who looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Now, if we were reading through Luke, we would know that Jesus is addressing this particular group because they have had the greatest trouble accepting and receiving his message. Their confidence in their own righteousness and their contempt for others we've discovered throughout the the gospel is uniquely incompatible with Jesus' ministry. Jesus' ministry was characterized by compassion for the lost, for sinners, for people who knew themselves to be far from God with little hope of reconciliation. After all, what could sinners, what could tax collectors do to atone for their sins before a holy God? How could they hope to put things right To these people, Jesus brought very good news. They did not need to make their way to God. God had come to them. And he had come bearing limitless grace and forgiveness for all who would receive it. But of course, as we know, if we've read through the gospel, not everyone received it. Some, in fact, resented this message. Some, like the elder son in another famous parable, felt cheated. They said, wait a minute, we have have labored our whole lives to be obedient to God, to live as God has commanded us to live. And now God's just just going to to forgive these people, these people who haven't labored in obedience, these people who have followed their own selfish impulses and desires? It simply couldn't be true. And if it was true... They wanted no part of it. They didn't want a free gift from God. They wanted God to look down at their faithfulness and to recognize it, to see their obedience and to give them what they deserved. They had earned it. Like me that day in traffic court, they thought they didn't need mercy because they had the facts on their side. This parable, Luke tells us, is directed specifically at that group at those who have resisted the gift Jesus was offering and who have objected to his message of grace and forgiveness. Look with me to see what Jesus says to them. Luke 18, starting in verse 10, says this. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, 
a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now this parable, technically, if you'd like to know, is a syncresis. All that means is it's a comparison of opposites by juxtaposition. In this case, what Jesus is doing is making a point about obedience and right standing before God by comparing what to his audience would have been very nearly two moral opposites, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Now, I assume that many of you are familiar with Pharisees, but let me provide just some brief background. Maybe the most important thing to keep in mind uh, The hardest thing, I think, for us to keep in mind and to imagine is that the Pharisees would have enjoyed a sterling reputation among the Jewish people. I can promise you, everyone in Jesus' audience, everyone listening to this parable, would have assumed that the Pharisee was righteous, that they were upright, that they enjoyed better standing before God than almost anyone else. And to be fair to the Pharisees, that wasn't just good marketing. They did work hard and in many ways sacrificed much to earn this reputation. They were scrupulous and disciplined in their obedience to God's law. And if they asked a lot of others, which they did, they asked a lot of themselves also. They were responsible, they were diligent, and they obviously prioritized faithfulness to God. Let me just say, if, if their modern equivalent walked through our doors one Sunday morning, uh, we would gladly welcome them, and before long, we would be recruiting them to positions of leadership and ministry. Uh, Jesus provides in the parable two little points just to drive this home. Look again at verse 12. Uh, first, we learn from the tax collector's own prayer that he fasts twice a week. Now, technically, Uh, The Torah only requires Jews to fast once a year. That's the the minimum requirement on the Day of Atonement. Faithful Jews would have fasted more often than that. Uh, Sometimes uh, because of a crisis, other times just as a matter of spiritual discipline, much as we might. This Pharisee fasts twice a week. Twice a week. He goes far above and beyond what is required. The second little detail we get is that the Pharisee tithes everything he receives. That means he is tithing all of his income, but he is also tithing everything he purchases. When he buys food for his meal, he gives a tenth of that to the Lord. He tithes far above and beyond what is strictly required. Whatever the law demands, he goes farther. Tax collectors, by comparison would have been considered by Jesus' audience to occupy the far other end of the moral spectrum. Uh, They were hated for two primary reasons. First, because taxes were paid to Rome, they were viewed as collaborators with Rome. And in a sense, they were. They collected money from their fellow Jews, and they passed it on to their occupiers and oppressors. Second, taxes worked differently in Rome than they do in our country, Uh, Rome, not wanting to be saddled with the administrative work of uh, calculating, assessing, and collecting taxes from subject peoples, just farmed this work out. Essentially, they contracted it out to the highest bidder. They would collect a bunch of people. Whoever told them they could get the most tax revenue out of a certain area, Rome said, congratulations, you get the job. And by the way, 
anything that you manage to squeeze out of those people above and beyond what we have agreed to, that's your payment. Well, you don't need to be an economist to see that that puts some pretty bad incentives in place. Right? It encouraged tax collectors to squeeze as much as was possible, far more than maybe was legally owed from their neighbors. This is what earned them a reputation as sinners and thieves, people who collaborated with Rome to take advantage of their fellow Jews. If the Pharisees were the most widely admired as a group in the Jewish world, the tax collectors surely were the most widely despised. And you'll notice that where the Pharisee can cite several acts of obedience to his credit before God, the tax collector cites none. Before God, he offers no defense. He offers no examples of his own obedience. All he can do, all he does, is to repent, to throw himself on God's mercy. In other words, as the parable unfolds, Nearly everyone in Jesus' audience would have assumed, they would have known that the Pharisee enjoyed a far better standing before God than the tax collector. How could he not? Here was a man who went above and beyond in, in all these different areas of obedience, while the tax collector had, had no positive examples to offer, only sins on his ledger. Surely, if God was going to look at these two guys and declare one of them to be not guilty, to be justified, surely that would be the Pharisee. Well, now with the setup complete, we've got the two guys, the opposite ends of the moral spectrum. Jesus delivers the punchline, a shocking and unexpected twist. Look again at verse 13. Jesus looks at his audience, who already knows how this is going to turn out, and he tells them exactly the opposite of what they expect to hear. He says, I tell you that the tax collector, and not the Pharisee, went home justified before God. Now let me just say, the problem for us is that we aren't surprised to hear this. But Jesus' audience would have been shocked. I can't stress it enough. Uh, this would have seemed ridiculous to the people listening to Jesus for all of the reasons that we just went through a few minutes ago. Um, many years ago, 10 plus years ago, hopefully longer than the statute of limitations ago, uh, my uncle and his son, Neil, were walking uh, through the woods by their cabin in northern Minnesota. They were walking down a gravel road. It was the fall. The weather was cooling down. And as they walked down the road, uh, they saw a grouse, adult grouse, standing right on the edge of the road, as they like to do. Uh, and Neil, something like eight, nine years old, who was just starting to get excited about hunting, uh, oh, look, there's a grouse. And his dad goes, yeah, well, that's good to know. Grouse season, it's not, not quite here yet. It's coming, but it's good to know they're up here. Uh, Neil, being a nine-year-old boy, looks down at his feet and sees, look, there's rocks all over the place. He grabs a rock and he looks at his dad and says, can I try to hit it with a rock? And his dad goes, Neil, no, that, that grouse is 20 yards away. They're quick. You're never going to hit it. And he says, yeah, but, but can I try to hit it? And his dad says, okay, fine. All right, take, take your best shot. Neil winds up. And he whips that rock and just knocks that grouse out cold. I mean, just bullseye. And his dad is kind of shocked and horrified. 
Uh, and later when we asked, well, why did you tell him he could throw the rock? And he goes, because, because of course I knew he could never hit that grouse with a rock. But he did. I suggest to you this morning that in that moment, my uncle felt something like Jesus' audience when Jesus delivered verse 13. When I picture the scene, I imagine several seconds of stunned silence followed by an eruption, a tumult of questions. But Jesus, how could a tax collector go home justified? And why would the Pharisee not go home justified? More to the point, where did the Pharisee go wrong? Where did he go wrong? Well, verse 14 gives us a hint. Uh, It's a signpost, I think, pointing us in the right direction. Jesus wraps up the parable saying, For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. Well, I'd like to spend the rest of our time unpacking exactly what that means. What does that mean, and why does it explain the shocking outcome of the parable? Well, as it happens, I think Luke gives us the interpretive key right in his introductory remarks. Look again at verse 9. Remember, Luke prefaces the parable by telling us, Jesus told this parable to those who were confident in their own righteousness and who looked down on everyone else. We are told where the Pharisee goes wrong before the parable even begins. He was too confident in his own righteousness, and he looked down on others. Let's take those one at a time, starting with the second. First, we know for certain from the Pharisee's own prayer in verse 11 that he did look down on others. And to understand why this is such a problem, I think we need to understand three things. Two about the Pharisee and one about Jesus' teaching on obedience. First, I think we should take the Pharisee at his word about his obedience. Uh, It's easy for us to have a, a very cynical view of the Pharisees, but the reality here is this was a man who in many areas not only met the requirements of the law, he did go far beyond what was required. He does in fact have many reasons to be confident in his own righteousness. But second... Despite these many other areas of obedience, he does most certainly look down on others. We have it from his own mouth. In the middle of his own prayer, in verse 11, he says, God, thank you that I am not like these other sinners. When looking at others, he feels pride and contempt instead of compassion. Now let me ask you a question. What would Jesus say, speaking of obedience, what would Jesus say are the two most important commandments? The two most important. What would Jesus say if you asked him are the two things that the entirety of the law and the prophets hang upon? And by the way, that's, that's Jesus framing. All of this hangs on these two things, not mine. Matthew twenty two forty. Jesus says, when asked, the greatest commandment, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second he volunteers is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he reiterates all of the law, all of the prophets hang on these two things. The problem for the Pharisee and the spot where he goes wrong is that when Jesus said that about the law, 
he meant it. Jesus really means that love for God and for our neighbor is central to faithfulness to God. It is central to our obedience to God. When I started working at Target uh, in my last year or so of college, uh, I I came on as an entry-level floor worker. My job was mainly to restock shelves and to answer questions, help out customers. Uh, And I noticed, after not very long working there, that we had some curious employees. Uh, There was a couple people uh, who showed up. They were wearing the uniform, the red shirt, and the khakis. Uh, They'd show up on time, on the days they were supposed to work, Uh, And they'd stay there for their whole shift and leave when they were supposed to leave. Uh, The curious thing was, I never really saw them working, all right? Uh, I knew their job was the same as mine. It was to restock shelves. It's just that that I never saw them restocking shelves. Uh, Their job was to help customers with any questions they had. But I couldn't help but notice, they would always end up taking a customer to another employee because they never knew the answer to the questions, Now, when I was working with them, I just thought this was sort of funny, sort of weird, that apparently we had these people that dressed like me and just wandered the floor for hours at a time. Uh, But later, when I became a department manager, it became a problem. Uh, And finally, one of these people, it was my job to sit down with them and to, as Target called it, coach them. Uh, And and I I was prepared to tell them, hey, you know, you're not really doing much here. You need to do more work. And I expected, I came into the conversation expecting pushback, expecting to hear, oh, you just don't see all the stuff I'm doing. I'm doing plenty of stuff. You just don't see all of it. Um, And so it came as something of a surprise to me when after I I raised the issue of them not really doing work, that they said they didn't deny any of it. Instead, this guy looked right at me and said, look, I show up every day I'm, I'm supposed to show up I clock in on time. I'm always following the dress code. What more do you want from me? (laughs) I kid you not. And I said, well, I am happy about all of those things. Those are, to some extent, important things. But if you don't actually do any work while you're here, the rest of that doesn't actually matter. You see, the rest of those things are great. It is good to show up on the days you're scheduled to work. It is good to follow the dress code. Uh, But we might say that actually doing your job, doing the work you were hired to do, is central to being an employee. We might even say that all those other things, the uniform, showing up on time, leaving on time, hang on that one central fact of doing the work. Friends, Jesus' clear and repeated message all throughout his ministry is that any obedience to God without love for our neighbors, no matter how scrupulous, is fatally compromised. It's fatally compromised. If we genuinely desire to be faithful to God, if we earnestly want to obey him, then we must, we must prioritize loving the people around us, perhaps, maybe even especially, the people we are prone to looking down upon. I want to take just a moment to uh, confess to you this week that this really convicted me. Uh, Most of us, I would already guess, know that Jesus called this the second greatest commandment. But for some reason, this brought it home for me in a different way. 
Uh, Here we see clearly from Jesus' own mouth that the command to love our neighbors is not just one among many. It is at the center of our obedience to God. If we refuse to love our neighbors, what we are doing is we are rejecting something that is central to God's own identity, uh, central to his character and his purposes. If we want to faithfully follow Jesus, then we must treat others with compassion, with humility. Fail in that, Jesus says, and we are like the worker who shows up on time and in uniform, but refuses to do his job. The Pharisee's first problem is that despite his scrupulous obedience in many areas, he has failed to be obedient in one of the areas that is most central, most important to God. His righteousness, which is impressive, it is impressive, from many angles, is fatally compromised at its center. His second issue, also previewed by verse 9, is that he was too confident in his own righteousness. And you can see how this one follows on the first. Now again, uh, let me first point out that by Jesus' own interpretation of the law, this Pharisee should not actually have been very confident in his own righteousness, uh, precisely because his obedience fell short in one of the areas that Jesus stressed as the most important. Instead of having compassion for this tax collector, he showed contempt. And so the Pharisee was wrong to be confident in his own righteousness because his righteousness turned out to be much less impressive than he had anticipated. And that, of course, is why it is dangerous for any of us. It is dangerous, friends, for any of us to be confident in our own righteousness. We are all of us unreliable judges, and we are often wrong. And before we pile on the Pharisee, let me add that if there is any lesson that is far clearer on this side of the cross than the other, this should be it. Look, whatever excuse the Pharisee has for placing too much confidence in his own righteousness, we have far, far less. Amen? Far less. We constantly celebrate here Sunday mornings the sacrifice of Jesus because we know beyond a shadow of a doubt, that he is the one and only way to the Father. Jesus and Jesus alone is our defense. Jesus alone is our righteousness. We sing it, we pray it, we preach it, we teach it. Jesus is our righteousness. We have no other. And yet, I know it's not just me. Somehow the temptation is still there, isn't it? The temptation to look down on others, to compare ourselves favorably, of course, with those around us, to take pride in our acts of obedience, however small, especially when we see others doing less. And as this parable reminds us, the reason that is so dangerous is that when we, like the Pharisee, is it like the Pharisee, the more proud we become of our own righteousness, the more we underestimate our own need for God's mercy. Friends, the twofold message of the cross is that all who receive God's gift of salvation in Christ will be freely justified. Everyone who receives it. And, and that only those, 
Only those who receive God's gift in Christ can be justified. In the end, no one, no one will be justified apart from God's mercy. I want to close today by trying to uh, share with you something I've been thinking about uh, over the past, I don't know, six months or so. Some of you are going to recognize this. You've helped me workshop it at donut times and such over the past several weeks. Uh, what I want to put to you is that there's, there's two fundamental ways that we can think about obedience to God. All right, one way we can think about it is we can think about obedience as being focused on the line, right? So where you're looking for the line, and by the line I mean, all right, what's that line where if I'm on, if I'm on this side of it, I, I'm fine, I, I'm not sinning, I, I'm in good standing before God. So for, from our parable today, if, if this side of the line is you have to fast once a year, I'm fasting once a year, I'm on this side of the line. But if I'm, if I'm not fasting once a year, I'm on the wrong side, right? Or tithing. Is the line 10%? Is it of net? Is it of gross? Whatever we decide it is, as long as I'm giving 10%, I'm on this side. But if I fall to 9.5%, now I'm sinning. So, so one way to look at obedience is we focus on that line, Right? Uh, and in a sense, we have our back to God, we have our eyes fixed on the line, and we're just we're making sure that we stay on the right side of the line. Now, I want to put it to you that there's a couple of problems with this approach. Uh, the first problem with this approach uh, is that it leads us to be overconfident in our own righteousness. Because any time we find ourselves, however barely on this side of the line, we all of a sudden start to feel pretty good about ourselves. Right? Uh, and in fact, maybe we tend to, if we're honest, we focus on the areas where we're on the right side of the line, and, and we maybe don't focus as much on those other areas where we find ourselves on the wrong side. The second problem that comes with this approach is that when you're facing the line, all you can see and all you're tempted to see are the people who aren't quite doing as well as you. You look up and you think to yourself, ah, look at all these other people. Thank you, Lord, I'm not like these other people on the wrong side of the line. Or thank you, Lord, that I'm not like these other people who are so much closer to the line than I am. Because that's where our focus is. That's where our eyes are. It encourages overconfidence in our own righteousness. And it encourages, it makes it easy, even natural, to look down on others. Because that's what we see. There's a second way, I think, a better way to think about obedience to God. And that is to put your back to the line and to fix your eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Instead of worrying about where the line is, what we worry about is living a life where each day, each week, each year, we are trying to move closer. We're striving to head closer and closer to God. We're moving closer to our Lord. We're asking God always, Father, help me to move in the direction of greater faithfulness and greater obedience. We're not worried about how close we are to the line. We're worried about whether or not we're getting closer to our Savior and our Lord. I want to suggest to you there's a couple benefits to this approach. One, if we are fixing our eyes on Christ, humility had better come a lot more naturally than if you're facing the other way around. What we'll realize right away when we fix our eyes on Jesus is that however close or far we might be from the line or from others, we are much farther from our Lord that all of us have a long ways to go. It should make us humble instead of proud. The second thing that will do is I think it will help us respond to those around us with compassion instead of condescension. 
Because instead of looking at the people who are all on the wrong side of the line, now all of a sudden we are reminded that we are all of us far from our Lord. And hopefully it will encourage us to respond to the people around us with compassion. Uh, it will encourage us to say, hey, come with me. Let's walk together. Let's head together towards Christ. Here's what I'd like to encourage you to do as an application, more or less, of this parable. I'd like you to try that. Maybe you already are, but the next time, like me, you feel convicted, the next time you're feeling impressed with your own obedience, or the next time you catch yourself looking around at other people in your life or people around you at church or at work and thinking to yourself, how much more righteous, how much better you are than them, try turning around. Try fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, Instead of feeling satisfied just with being one step to the good, to being on the right side of the line, come to God each day and ask him to help you take the next step. Help him to, ask him to help you head towards greater faithfulness. Ask Jesus to help you face the right direction. Would you close with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word and we thank you for your mercy. Lord, I, I thank you that we have the chance, this group, this family, uh, every week, and more often than that sometimes, to celebrate the gift of salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. I thank you that we can remind each other and be reminded that, that aside from your grace, none of us are justified. None of us would be righteous before a holy God. We thank you, Lord, that you have offered that gift freely to all of us. Lord, I pray that you would help those who have not yet received it to receive it, to trust in your gift instead of in their own righteousness. Lord, I pray for the rest of us who have already accepted that gift. Lord, help us to face not the line, but our Lord and Savior. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus so that we might always be headed in the direction of greater faithfulness. Give us compassion for those around us. Give us a heart to help them, to serve them, to love them, and to pull them forward also towards Christ. In your name we pray, amen. I'd like to just take a moment here uh, as, as a way of responding and, and practicing what I just suggested, fixing our eyes on Christ, uh, to give us a chance to take a step towards greater faithfulness. Uh, I'm doing this, as I shared earlier, because I was convicted this week. I've heard the thing about the second greatest command a million times. And yet, I have to admit, when I read this parable, uh, I just got a gut punch from the Holy Spirit. And I realized, man, I I'm struggling with this right now. Uh, I, I am struggling to see uh, some people in my life right now with compassion and with humility uh, inst instead of arrogance. Uh, I had to repent of that. I had to take some time this week uh, to come before God and say, God, help me, help me to take a step towards you to see these people and respond to these people as you see and respond to them. I just want to give you an opportunity to do the same thing this morning. So I encourage you, uh, like, like the tax collector, by the way, who went off to the side by himself uh, and just came before God, I'd ask you to do that. Just bow your heads and take a moment. I'd ask you just to be open to ask the Holy Spirit to maybe reveal to you, is there someone in your life right now that you find it very difficult to love? Someone that's making it so hard for you to show compassion 
Someone that makes it difficult for you uh, to approach in humility. Just take a moment and ask the Lord to, to reveal that to you. me that name those names might come up right away you you were already thinking about them as I was preaching uh, for others it's maybe gonna take a little more time and I know you know this sitting here with the head bowed is easy to get distracted I know when I do that my mind tends to wander uh, but I want to encourage you this isn't the only time to do it be open to that this week what God might reveal to you uh, I just want to encourage you take some time make some time in your schedule to fix your eyes on Jesus and to let him show you what your next step of greater faithfulness is. Lord, we thank you uh, that you not only saved us, you sent us your Holy Spirit uh, to transform us, to guide us, to direct us, to, to reshape our lives and our identity. Lord, I pray that you would make us sensitive to his voice and his leading. I pray, Lord, that we would respond, that we would follow that we would take that next step towards greater faithfulness as your spirit leads us. Amen.